Hey guys. It's uh wow, the energy level is Hello people. That's, that's it. I was I was looking I was looking for that. I was looking for that. I need I need I need energy. I need that's it bro. I need I missed you being in the room when this stuff happens. Alright peeps. Hello, hello, welcome to uh, week one, sort of, one, 1. 1. 1.1 of, uh, of the Covenant series. I need energy because this is the start of a new series. That's exciting. It's awesome. Okay. I thought um, when Jono told me the topic, I was like, oh, Covenant, like kind of you hear the word all the time, but I haven't really kind of looked into it. And then I started like digging in and I was like, oh, excellent choice of topic, bro, because this is... This is as rich as rich gets. Um, so, okay, let's bow our heads and pray and get into the exciting stuff that's ahead. Um, Lord, we just thank you so much for um, tonight, Lord. We thank you that you brought us all here safely, Lord. And we pray for any who might still be on the way, Lord, and those who are not with us tonight, that um, your blessing would be with them, your peace, your grace, Lord. And um, we just pray that tonight, Lord, you would open our eyes, you would excite us, you would... Um, paint the grand picture of your um, your wonderful plan um, in our minds and in our hearts, Lord. And would you excite us about um, what you've done in it for us, Lord, and who we are to you um, tonight, Lord. We just thank you so much for, um, for tonight, Lord. We just pray that um, by your presence and by your spirit, um, you would change hearts, Lord. You would open eyes, you would open ears, Lord, and that we would be responsive to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, there are a few seats up here. Um, well, it is always sincerely like a giant highlight for me every time I, um, I get to be with you guys and to share. Um, it is, it is, uh, it's a big deal. I love it. I value it. Um, and, I'm, and, and I'm really glad that I'm here with you tonight. So we're speaking about this idea of covenant, right? And uh, I just want to be able to, to, to sort of lay a bit of a foundation for um, what you guys are going to tackle next in the series. So I want to give it a very sort of broad overview of the Bible story and then of how kind of covenant fits into that. Then I want to zoom in on one of the covenants that's in the Bible, which is a prominent one that God makes with Abraham, right? Then I want to zoom out again to, well... What is God's plan? Where do we fit in all that? And why is this whole covenant series going to be um, important and formative in the way that you read your Bible and in the way that you um, kind of see it? Okay, so think about it this way. Covenants are like when you, when you see a brand of car for the first time that you never noticed before. And then you go out the next day and on your drive, you see a million of those cars. And up until that day, you hadn't seen that car before. Happens to everyone. Weird psychological trick. Covenants are like that. The Bible is full of them from literally Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. It's a giant covenant story. It's peppered in there the whole way through. You just haven't viewed it through that lens before. So that's what we're going to sort of start digging into today, which is why it's exciting. But to understand covenants in context, we have to sort of we have to lay a foundation, a solid foundation of the biblical narrative from that point of view first. Okay, so. If you're a new Christian, um, or maybe you're not a new Christian, but there, there tends to be often this focus on the New Testament. We follow Jesus, everything about Jesus, the New Testament, we've got to read the Gospels. We've got to do, 
But it's like the Bible is one unified whole. It's one unified story from Genesis to Revelation about a loving God who is in relentless pursuit of restoring a fractured relationship with his people. Right? It's an incredibly glorious story. But the painting begins in the Old Testament, not in the New. Right? Um, there was, uh, there was a, a man named Sidney Bell um, at our old church. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he used to say something that I always loved. He said, um, he was talking about the Old and the New Testament. He always said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Right? He would explain it like a person standing in the sunshine with their shadow. It's like the Old Testament is the shadow. You can kind of make out the general shape of this person, their height, you know, whatever. But there's no detail. You can't tell that I'm wearing a green jumper and you can't tell what the lacing and the pattern on my shoes is. You can't tell my eye color. You can't tell my skin tone. All of those things, all of those beautiful details become vivid and come to life as the substance of the shadow in the New Testament. But the New Testament is a reflection of that shadow is the substance of that shadow. They're one and the same. They're inextricably linked. They're one story from beginning to end. And if you separate them in your mind as, well, this is some cool stuff about Israel, but this is Christianity, you've missed the point. And covenants tie the old and the new in an incredible way, right? So, first of all, we just have to have this understanding of a unified biblical narrative, of a unified story of God. Pursuing his people relentlessly through both the old and the new. And his pursuit continues, right? But his methods often vary. Kind of like when you put in to Google that you want to go to the Eureka Sky Deck from your house. You might take heaps of different, there's a million different routes to get there. But the destination never changes. And for God, it's the same. His pursuit of his people, his desire to reconcile them to himself never changes. But he uses a multitude of different roads and methods to do that, right? There's this um, kind of in, in this biblical narrative, right? I want you to, to view something beautiful in it, which is that the Old Testament is full of all of these shadows that we were talking about, right? That become substance in the New Testament. Some of the idea of a shadow, for example, is like this, just to give you a, a unified picture, right? God wants to dwell with man. So you see him in the Garden of Eden, walking in the cool of the day with Adam, right? Like this is a this is a pastime. God dwelling with man. There is no barrier between them. There's no sin. Adam is in a state of innocence. There's this flowing relationship there. There's this intimate personal relationship there. It's amazing, right? But then you go a little bit further in the Bible and you see this idea of a tabernacle after sin. This tent in the wilderness that Israel would set up and God's personal presence in the form of a cloud or smoke would appear and the priest would go in and you would, you know, you would see all the, the different facets of that tent and the basin outside and the altar and the Holy of Holies and all that kind of stuff. And then a little bit later, you get the temple, right? And then a little bit later than that, you get in the New Testament that we are God's temple, that God's dwelling is now in us, that we are that temple. It's this ever increasing intimacy and permanence until you get to eternity, where the reality of that fullness of whatever that thing is, is fulfilled. Marriage is the same. The relationship between a father and son is the same. All of these earthly things dotted throughout the entire Bible are just shadows 
They, some of them find their fulfillment in the New Testament, but ultimately the reality of them can be seen in light of eternity. Right? One narrative, shadows, substance, eternity, lots of things are going on. Right? But again, this line of God's pursuit just continues ever onward. Right? But there's this beautiful rhythm and symmetry to the Bible. And we'll get into covenants in a second, but this is... This is the groundwork for that. There's a beautiful symmetry to the Bible, right? The story starts with creation and a wedding, right? And the story ends with a new creation and the ultimate wedding, the consummation of Christ and the church, right? You see God cursing the ground when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And you see Jesus on the cross wearing a crown of thorns, wearing the curse, there are these, there's a river in Eden. There's a river in the New Jerusalem. There's, there's this whole beautiful array of God reconciling from beginning to end and creating this perfect circle. And in spite of the giant mess that's in the middle, he is committed to that purpose and he will see it fulfilled. That's why we have Revelation. It's a beautiful picture of seeing the whole puzzle tied together, right? So... There are a few lenses that we use to read, understand, and interpret the Bible, right? There are a few words and a few concepts that you kind of hear over and over again. And you view everything that you read in the Bible kind of through those lenses. Two really common ones are the word faith, right? In Hebrews 11, you, hear, you read that without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? You hear about faith and you read about faith in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And you understand that it's the way that we relate to God. If you don't understand faith, then you won't understand how to please God. Not only that, you, it will, you will find it impossible to please God. If you can't believe in Him, if you can't believe Him, you can't have a relationship with Him, right? So faith is one of those foundational lenses that we view all of the teaching of the Bible, right? Sin is another one. If you miss sin, this idea of missing the mark, this idea of disobedience... If you don't understand that, if you don't understand that you're drowning and that you're in opposition to something, then you won't understand grace, redemption, salvation, being saved from anything. I'm not drowning. I'm not in trouble. What do I need salvation from? Right? There are these foundational concepts, lenses, if you will, that we read the entire Bible through. Covenant is one of them. Right? Covenant is actually a crucial one of them. Tim Keller says this. Covenants are the big key to unlocking and understand the understanding of the redemptive history. And the redemptive reality we experience. That God laid out in the Bible. From the very start of Genesis to the very end of Revelation. Covenants hover over and over throughout the scriptures. Helping us understand the word that God created. The world that God created. And how he worked to redeem it from its fallen state. The more you learn about covenants the more the Bible's overarching story will begin to click into place. So we're being presented with covenants as a lens that we can read the entire Bible through and this one of these red cars that we're going to start seeing everywhere. Definitions are good. Dave Abdi loves them. Uh, I'm a big fan of them because Dave Abdi loves them and taught me to pay attention to them. So uh, a secular one from the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, is that a covenant... So that we have a point of reference is a binding promise of far reaching importance in the relations between individuals, groups and nations. Right. That's a good, broad definition, a binding promise of far reaching importance in relations between 
different parties, right? That's actually, that's a very apt description. Timmy Keller again, because he's a ledge, right? He says this, covenants are a stunning blend of law and love. Two parties, namely in the Bible, God and his people, form a bond through covenants towards a shared purpose that involves a binding oath, a lifetime commitment, curses for breaking the covenant and blessings for keeping it. These are important features of the covenant that you're going to see throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, right? God elected to bind himself to his people through a covenantal relationship, one that we experience through the new covenant with Jesus today. And I know that I think Dave will take that, that message, so I don't want to steal too much of his thunder, although I will touch, touch on, on a little bit of it today, right? So there are, there are five sort of recognized main covenants that you see in the Bible that kind of that are really formative in, in, in shaping the story of redemption that God is working through, right? But I think that there's a sixth that isn't sort of mentioned or spoken about as a covenant, but I think it bears all the marks of a covenant. And that's literally starting from Genesis 1, where God has this relationship with Adam. So like I said before... Yeah, okay. Well, normally, they don't mention it. I don't know why, but there you go. There is is a sixth one. Jonah recognizes it. It's legit. Okay. Jonah recognizes it. Um, you see God walking in the garden with Adam. There's relationship there. God creating Adam and calling them good and giving and creating everything else and calling it good. And giving Adam and Eve a role. Right? You know, populate the earth, be fruitful, multiply, subdue it. Right? Care for it, tend it, till it. Right? The earth over the animals over, you know, it's this. Here's the thing, right? God has just, what you just heard before is God creating a universe. Literally a universe, right? Universe, single spoken phrase. He spoke and all of this stuff came into existence, right? Over these days of creation, this stunningly, this, you know, stunning display of power and beauty and intricacy and, you know, it's amazing. And then he comes to these little tasks like naming the animals and like, you know, taking care of the earth and tilling it and whatever. And it's like, hey, you've already done way harder stuff. So this isn't a question of God's capacity or capability to perform an action. But he chooses to give those roles to Adam and Eve. He says, hey, I want you to have this role on the earth. I'm partnering with you in the care of the earth and the population of it and all of these in all of these tasks, right? Because I want you to image me. We talk about the image of God all the time, but we don't really, we don't let it click until you kind of look at it through this kind of lens. I want you to be my representatives here. I want you to experience what I experienced in creation. When you create another human being. I want you to experience my creativity when you do this and when you do that. I want you to literally be a part of the symphony that I am creating, that I have created. You carry my nature, so partner with me in doing my work. Image me, right? It's stunning that this is how God thinks about us and that he did this pre-fall, that he related to us this way. Before sin, before the fall. And that's important. He didn't just bring in this idea of covenants as soon as we sinned. This is how God has been relating to us from creation. 
And that's important to notice and to understand, right? God lays out the blessing of the garden. He says, hey, you have the whole garden. You have this. You have that. Life is going to be amazing. You're going to, be, you're going to do this. You're going to subdue the earth. Here's your roles. It's fantastic, right? But then God lays out his terms in giving Adam and Eve the blessing. But he gives it to them with a warning and a consequence on the other side. These are all features of what a covenant looks like. And then God, when they break it, which they do, God redeems them in blood through a sacrifice that atones for their sin and that clothes their nakedness. That's like the entire biblical narrative in like five dot points. That's, that's literally man's sin. That's the gospel from beginning to end. right? And God spends the next several eons of history like slowly outworking that. If that makes sense in every generation, in every people, in every phase till now. Right. So these are the five covenants that come after the first one. OK. There are five main ones. Right. And they are a stunning display of God's masterpiece of redemption. Right. The covenant with Noah. Everyone sin since Adam has increased to fever pitch. God destroys the earth and destroys its inhabitants other than this one family. And then God promises in his covenant with Noah never to flood the earth again. One, Abraham, right? He promises him to make him, to make out of him a people and a great nation and to bring out of him a seed that will bring universal blessing to the nations, right? Um, So that family will grow to become a family that transcends just People called by his name, which is really exciting, right? And we'll dive into that a little bit in a bit. Um, Moses, God promises to make Israel into a holy kingdom of priests that will spread his blessing and glory to all the nations, instructing them to keep all his laws with blessings for obedience and with curses for disobedience. We move on and we have David. God promises David to make his name great and raise up a descendant from David's line, right? Whose throne and kingdom will last forever. You know, hint, it's Jesus, right? The last one is Jesus. And this is the new covenant. Um, This new covenant, God promises, will be an everlasting covenant. God says that he will write his law on the hearts of his people. With Moses, they're like, yeah, we'll obey. And, you know, but they keep falling short. But he's like, hey, I want to actually... Make this a part of who you are. I want to change fundamentally the nature of your heart so that you want to obey. You don't just feel like you have to out of fear or obligation or whatever else. He promised to bring complete forgiveness of sin and raise up a faithful king from the line of David who will restore all that has been broken. We see that in Jeremiah 31, right? I want to... um, I might have to reconnect to the interwebs because uh, here we go. There's no internet to read the stuff for you. Does anyone have a Bible and they want to whip it out? Thank you, bro. What would I do without you, Janus? Okay. Okay, so the. It's Jeremiah 31, 31, verse 31 to 34. Anybody wants 
to read that out for me. declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, No, Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Perfect. Thank you, Genus, to the rescue. I'm now connected to the internet, which is good. Um, a new covenant to restore, to bind, to heal, to forgive to bring us into closer relationship with God, right? Timmy Keller. Oh, no, not Timmy Keller. Tim Mackey, another Tim, right? Lots of Tims. Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy, says this about kind of those five covenants when you look at them together. He says, the covenants progressively build on one another, if you haven't noticed that. They're forming a complete redemptive storyline. God preserves the world through Noah, right? Then he initiates redemption through Abraham. He establishes the nation of Israel through Moses. right? Promised an eternal shepherd king through David. And then fulfilled all of his covenants through Jesus. With each covenant, God's promises and plans to save the world through the seed of the woman from Genesis becomes clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through the king, Jesus. Right? The whole Bible is just covenants. God is working through these covenants to create a very clear direction, storyline, culminating in Jesus and his work on the cross. Right. So I want to zoom in on the Abrahamic covenant, this this Abraham one. Right. It's found in Genesis 15. If you've got a Bible and you want to pull it up, there is some freaky stuff in there, man. It is is a weird, weird chapter, but it is full of some really, really cool things. Um, so Genesis 15, if you've got your Bible and you want to pull it up or you can listen to me, uh, read it. So it says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. He wasn't Abraham yet. I am your shield, your very great reward. Well, that's, that's encouraging. But Abram said, sovereign Lord. What can, give me, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Remember, God had promised Abraham uh, an heir, right? And a seed. Uh, but he's been waiting for a few decades now and that promise hasn't come to pass. Then the word of the Lord, verse 4, came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's something really important. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? It's questioning of 
all the promises, but he still believes it. Right? Uh, but Abraham said, uh, sorry, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, starting to get freaky, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. All right. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, which would have been a strange, gruesome task in the middle of the desert, and arranged the halves of each animal opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Right? So there's blood and entrails everywhere, probably at this point. Then the birds of prey, which is probably why they came, came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, we're going to assume that it's you know, in a vision. He can somehow, you know, he's still interacting with God, but he's, he's in this deep sleep. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and buried and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then something more freaky happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared. And passed between the pieces of the animals. It's like, when I read this again, I was like, what the heck? I've read my Bible before. I don't remember this part at all. This is like, this is a very strange thing that's going on here. And verse 18, And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. To the land of the Kenites, Kenzites, Cadmonites, lots of different people. Right? What the heck is going on here? And what does this have to do with anything with the animals and pieces and flaming torch and a nightmare about you know people being enslaved 400 years from that point in time? Uh, this is this is strange, right? Um, but there are some amazing truths in this little portion. I was listening to. Uh, your boy Tim Mackey and also Tim Keller both of them but um, Tim Mackey broke this down in a really cool way I want to share parts of that with you the first thing to recognize in that story is when you go um, into um, verse 6 it says Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness it's important to understand that God has been operating from the Old Testament to the New Testament on this principle of faith and grace. Since then, with all the sacrifices, with all of the covenants, with all of the stuff, what God credited to Abraham as righteousness was believing the promise, was believing his word, was trusting his provision and outworking that in the way that he lived. Right, Because we know from the New Testament that faith is not just words or just feelings, but faith is a belief that expresses itself in an action. I go to you know, a bungee jumping platform in New Zealand. There are some amazing ones there. right? And the guy explains to me, hey man, how much... And they do do this, by the way. 
they weigh you and they go, oh man, you know, how much do you reckon you weigh? And you're like, oh, you know, 72 kilos or whatever. And they're like, sweet. You see this rope that we're going to tie around you now? It can hold seven tons. That's the, you know, that's a, that's a semi-trailer, you know, whatever, an Isuzu truck. Do you weigh as much as an Isuzu truck? And then you have a chuckle and you're like, ah, oh, no, I don't. And then like, you're going to be safe, bro. This, this rope can take your weight, right? And it's like, you see these bolts that are tying the rope to the harness, to the platform? Well, they can each bear four, you know, 4,000 kilograms or whatever, or whatever it is. It's like, hey, do you weigh 4,000? No, I don't. Oh, okay. It's going to hold you up, bro, right? And all that's great. You're fully convinced in your mind that you're safe with this harness around you and that the harness is safely tied to the platform and that you're going to be okay when you jump, right? But then you get to the actual platform and in between, nestled in between this, you know, these two giant cliffs and there's a ravine and a river at the bottom that's like 180 meters deep and you're standing on that little platform and you're looking down at what looks like your death and there's this dangling rope underneath you, right? That's when what you believe from the guy is actually tested. If you believe what the guy said to you, you'll jump. You might be scared, but you won't die. You'll still jump. But if you go, hey, that's all great, and I believe you, but nah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die, and you take off the harness and you turn back, you don't actually believe it. That's the test, right? Abraham believed God in the proper sense of the word. He had faith. God saw that, knew that, saw its expression, saw the reality of it, the aliveness of it, and counted it to him as a righteousness. And God has been operating on that basis from the Old Testament to the New because when we think about Jesus, we think about him forgiving our sins and taking our punishment and doing all that kind of stuff, which we're going to get into in a second. Because that's the crux of the whole thing. But how many of your sins were future when Jesus died? All of them. When God pardons you today, from beginning to end, your whole lifespan, He's doing that based on what Jesus did on the cross back here. When God is accounting something as righteousness to Abraham... He's doing it by looking forward to Jesus at this point and saying, Jesus has paid it all. Abraham is free. The mechanism of pardon for the Old Testament and the New Testament is Jesus, is the cross. Right? Imagine you have this sheet that's perfectly flat, this bed sheet that has no wiggle, it's perfectly flat. And you put all these marbles on different points of the sheet. Right? And then imagine... They're not moving. They're perfectly still. You get a bowling ball and you put it right in the center and you see it begin to carry down the sheet. All those marbles from all the different corners of the sheet suddenly rush straight into the middle. That's the cross. The event that brings the new and the old together is the cross and the way that it unifies the redemption story. Right. Um, so it's important to note that from even before the law, God was... Um, recognizing this trust, this faith as righteousness. That's how he deals with us today. That's how he dealt with Abraham then. The second thing is God's desire to restore his people and bind himself to them in love and blessing and to have them partner with him and bless him. He wants to create a people for himself. 
He's always wanted his family back, right? And he wants it to be as large as humanly possible. But he starts with one group of people. And he says, you're going to represent me on the earth. This is why I'm reading through Joshua now. And it's brutal. Like there's no way around the brutality of Joshua. Joshua and the army of Israel are going from one town to the other, wiping it out. And God is pronouncing judgment on each of those towns as they wipe it out. God decrees that that war that's being waged against that group of people is holy in his sight. He gives the Israelites laws. He gives them precepts. He gives them ways of living. And he tells them to obey them because to the world, God is using Israel to reflect and represent himself. So when you break those laws or those precepts or you disobey or you fall short, what you're saying to the world is that God is this. God lets this slide. God doesn't care about this. God is unfaithful in this. God is unloving in this. God is, God is, God is. He is setting them up and giving them a blueprint to live in a way that images and represent Him. So when they fall short, it's a serious thing because they are the gospel to the world at that time. They are shaping the understanding of the world at that time about who God is and how He operates and what He values and what He despises and what He judges. So when he sends in the army to wipe out that town, that is the physical manifestation of God's judgment, which we see differently in the New Testament. But he did it physically in the old. And he's like, you want to see what I hate? Look at what I'm attacking. Look at what I'm judging. Right? So, and at the same time, look at what I'm blessing. Look at what's flourishing here. Look at what's... So it's very important to understand that um, God has always been committed to creating this group of people who image him and he wants a family. And he says that to Abraham. He's like, I will make out of you a people and a nation. Right. And they'll be mine and they'll represent me on the earth. And that's amazing. Right. The third thing. And this is this is the one that always gets me is the stunning nature of God's foreknowledge and choice. We're not going to get into crazy predestination talks now. This is not what I mean by this. I mean, he says this, when Abraham goes into this troubled sleep where God shows him something unpleasant, which is no for certain. You know who else knows for certain? God himself. He says no for certain. He's saying that because he can see it. That for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You have to understand that from God's point of view, time is not the way that we see it. He is speaking to Abraham at the same time as he is watching the Israelites be enslaved. At the same time as he is watching Jesus die on the cross. At the same time as he is listening to me giving this message. Enjoy wrapping your head around that one. It's one thing to him. Right? This is what's insane about that. That is like, by the way, covenant is most often expressed, at least in the modern day, in this idea of marriage. That's the only like 
covenant. That's the only relationship that we describe as a covenant today that actually carries the features of this whole law and love thing. Like we love each other and we're bound to each other by an agreement and there's like, you know, there's a solemnity and seriousness and beauty and, you know, glory to that. Marriage, right? So from this point of view of seeing God see the whole thing, right? It's like I'm standing at the altar and I only know, or, or actually, I'm going to come to the altar. Somebody else is standing at the altar, right? There'll be a girl waiting, you know, whatever. Modern day. And as I get to the altar and I see this woman, right? The minister hands me a book and he says, hey, just flick through this real quick before you say your vows. You're like, okay. So you're like, all right. Right now it's January the 1st. I might start from there because that's day one of our marriage, which is today, right? And I flick like a couple of pages forward and it's like, hey, on uh, May 28th, uh, this time next year or whatever, this May 28th of next year, uh, your wife will cheat on you with a man named Blah at this time in this place. And you're like, oh, okay. You flick another couple of pages and you're like, hey, it's cooled down for a bit. Nothing's happened. Oh, wait, it happens again in you know April of blah, blah, blah. And then again in... January the following year and then again 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 and then some more and then you close the book and you give it back to the priest and he asks you do you still want a union with this woman do you still want to bind yourself to her do you understand when Jesus went to the cross right He wasn't just reading the book. He was living it, right? He saw there's a a kind of, I I wish I could remember the quote. I think it was A.W. Tozer. He says, he foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every betrayal, my every backsliding. And nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. It's got to be the most beautiful expression of anything ever. God looking forward and telling Abraham, hey, it gets messy for a while, but don't worry. I've got the resolution for you. Before he presents him the ultimate resolution, right? Is mind-blowing. Is incredible. The grace of God, the relentlessness of his pursuit to you and to me is mind-blowing. That's what he did when he came to the proverbial altar where he literally laid down his life because that's what an altar is for, a sacrifice. The last thing in this story where it gets really weird, right? Is this, is this torch, flaming torch, steaming thing uh, flying between the carcass pieces, Right? When I read that, I was like, what the heck is this? Where else are there? Is this weird carcass thing happen in the Bible? Guess what? Happened somewhere else, surprisingly. Jeremiah 34, verse 15, talks about a group of kings who made a pact to release some slaves. right? Uh, and they made a covenant with God to do it. And then they reneged on it and God was furious. right? And it goes like this. Verse 15 God is saying, recently you repented and did what was right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom. 
to your own people. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves. You were set free to go where they wished, which is a heinous, heinous thing to do, which is what Satan does, by the way. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So now I proclaim freedom for you. But what kind of freedom is it? Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat, get this, like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. And their dead bodies will become food for the birds and wild animals. The stuff's no joke. They made a covenant. They sealed it with this ceremony and with blood. And it's said that that walk between them is the oath to bear the curse if you fail to fulfill your end of the bargain. Right? Here's the incredible thing. When we read the Abraham account, does Abraham walk through the carcasses? Only God does. That is stunning. That is mind-blowing. God says, I know you can't bear this curse. I know what's coming for you. I will commit to upholding both parts of the bargain. Because if you're not asleep right now and you follow me here, you will have to die. God does this time and time again through the Bible, culminating obviously in Jesus. And we'll touch on that in a second. But he does it again with Abraham, with his son. Gives him another picture to reiterate it. Says, take your son whom you love. Wow, that sounds familiar. Up the mountain. And just before he brings the knife down on this boy's throat, he says, stop. I have a replacement. In the New Testament, whenever I think about it, I always think about the woman caught in adultery who was about to be stoned. And it made me realize a couple of years ago that every time Jesus was walking through the streets saying to someone, go in peace, your sins are forgiven, or touching someone and taking away their malady, or healing them, or forgiving them, of whatever, whenever, every single time, every single time he did that, he was having a conversation with the Father, saying, put this on my tab. I will pay for it myself. Every time he said to that person, your sins are forgiven you, he would have known that that is now being added to his tab because God is just and holy and righteous and he can't sweep things under the rug. Somebody has to pay for it. Either that person who he forgave or Jesus walking through the pieces. 
one or the other. No other way. That is stunning. God's commitment from the Old Testament to the New to protect his people from the consequences of breaking the covenant, which he knows they will break. And giving them a way out. Right? That's a little snapshot of the Abrahamic covenant. But the last question for us is really, what are the implications for us? Why is this important? Why does this matter? Right? Tim Keller again, he said, The covenants of the Bible are a stunning blend of law and love. When you get to the Moses part next week, I think, you will see the stack of blessings when the people of Israel obey the law. And you will see the giant stack of curses that they face when they don't obey the law. And the, the blessings are like a utopia on earth. You know, your, 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 you know, your wives are fruitful vines and the land bears its fruit and your enemies are routed on every side. And like, it's just, it's, it's man, this is the life, right? And the exact opposite of that, you're running in fear for your life. Your sons and daughters are sold into slavery. You're like, it's hell on earth is the other side, right? Curses and blessings, right? The terms of the covenant force you, and here's the question, to actually reckon with the character of God. And when you do that, you'll have to ask yourself a question, which is how do I and how can I relate to God, right? The character of God is this stunning blend of law and love. And they seem to be irreconcilable things when we think about them. Because it's like, you fall into one of two categories. This is how you think about God. Okay? You're thinking, on the one hand, Old and New Testament, right? God says, you have to obey, right? Or you'll be judged and cursed, right? And then on the other hand, you have a giant stack of promises saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be faithful to you. Right? And you're like, okay, well, which is it? If you, one of them will either be absolute or relative. Right? So, if you think, well, I have to obey. But God loves me. Right? But he'll continue to love me as long as I obey. That's called legalism. There's something on the other side called relativism. Which is, God loves me. That's the bit that doesn't change. That's the bit that's always fixed. But, you know, I have to obey and I'm going to fail and fall and whatever. But God's love's never going to change. That's called relativism. One leads you to live out of, um, you know, fear and self-loathing and hatred and, you know, falling short all the time, which you will. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The other one is, well, God loves everybody and there's no judgment and it's all good and I can just live how I want. Both of them completely miss the mark. The only reconciliation you find for the covenant comes in the cross, comes in Christ, right? He says, if, Jonah, you got your Bible still, is it dead? No? Right? Okay. Luke twenty-two nineteen. Oh no, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, I wrote it down. That's all good. Okay. It says this, Jesus speaking, and he took, just so you know that covenants are not like a, you know, uh, back there thing. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. On the eve of the most important thing that changed history and our lives forever, Jesus is saying, what I am doing right now in this moment is enacting the new covenant that you heard about all the way back there in Jeremiah about writing the law in your hearts and doing all this awesome stuff, right? Here's the thing. Do you have to obey? Yes. Is God fully committed to you? Yes. How can those two things coexist? Is my relationship with God conditional on human obedience? Yes, just not mine. Jesus in God becomes a man who lives the life that I couldn't live so that he earns the blessing of the covenant for me and he dies the death that I deserve for all the covenant breaking that I did. Stunning blend of law and love crashing into each other. God's justice satisfied. God's mercy poured out. So he can, that's the gospel. So he can be fully committed to me while fully accounting for my, fa- for my failure. So what does that mean? That we're now in the relative... No, we're not. It's not that. Because if I live that way and go, well, God's love and everything is accounted for and it's all good, it means that I don't actually believe it and that I never actually received it. Because if you genuinely love someone, your heart is not to continue to cause them pain. Your heart is not to... Con- because the cross... Stands as a beacon of both the law and the love. It's like, hey, God took sin so seriously that he tore his son literally apart. And that was just the physical bit. The bit that we can't understand is that Jesus didn't just pay for the curse. He became the curse. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Don't ask me to explain that. I don't understand what that means. God took sin so seriously that it didn't stop him from tearing his son apart. You think it's going to stop him from tearing you apart? That makes no sense. God is just love. There is no... No, no, no. No, the cross is both. God hates sin to the degree that he will punish it in his own son like that. Without mercy. But God loves me and you so much... That in Jesus, he takes away that punishment from you and pours out his blessing instead. But when I understand that, I don't go, well, God doesn't care about sin, so I'll go ham. Or, you know, his love is, it's like, no, sin is destructive and hurtful to you and to God and mars that image that he so beautifully crafted you in. But the love, right? So this dichotomy as Christians that we face of like, I have to obey, otherwise God won't. And then it's like, oh no, but you know, it's fine. I'm, I'm going to be, um, I think it's a guy named Sinclair Ferguson who said people's consciences are either screwed on too tight or too loose. He said, my job as a minister is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. Because whenever somebody walks through the door, they're in one of two buckets. They either think 
there's no sin in my life, I'm totally fine. Or, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. God's waiting for me with a rod. And, and they're so in there, self-righteous, falling short, that they can't see the grace and the love of God. In the cross, those two things are reconciled. Do you need to obey? Yes, but Jesus did for you. Is God committed to you and is the blessing for you? Yes, because Jesus earned it for you by the life that he lived that you couldn't. That's the gospel. That's the covenant fulfilled. Yeah? And God is still looking for people to image him in today's world. And he calls that group of people his bride, the church. It's not the nation of Israel anymore. It's us. God hasn't changed at all his method of partnership from Genesis 1 to the people sitting in this room. Do you see how covenant is the red car that pops up on every page of the Bible now? So my hope is as you guys read and reread and get into the mosaic part and then, you know, culminating in when Dave takes, probably Dave, I don't know, the message on, on Jesus being the fulfillment. It will just grow more and more and more exciting and glorious in your sight. And it would be a comfort to you that this is the gospel of grace that you live under. That this is the new covenant that you've partaken of by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you did what none of us could, Lord. What no sacrifices could do, what no amount of trying to live the right way could achieve, Lord. Um, Lord, there are hearts that are disturbed tonight. Um, and there are hearts that are not disturbed enough, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each heart, Lord. You would open our eyes, you would open our ears, our hearts to partner with you in this incredibly glorious way, Lord. We just thank you for what you've done on the cross for us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the stunning blend of law and love, perfectly reconciled and on full display as you died for us, Lord, bearing our curse and shame and pouring out your blessing and your love upon us, Lord. We just thank you and we praise you and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.